Ellen on politics. Two political parties who are funded by business as usual have all sorts of advantage. Together we'll stand. to see the end of a two-party system because I don't think either party is answering people's deepest concerns and needs. Hi, this is Alan on Politics and I'm Alan. I welcome you to today's show and I also welcome your comments and reactions to the show. You can leave those at the Alan on Politics YouTube channel or the Alan on Politics Facebook page where I'll be sure to see them. Today's topic is the two-party system. What's wrong with it? Why we have a two-party system? And what can be done about it? So I'd like to start off with what might seem like a slight digression, and that is the congressional hearing on the January 6th invasion of the U.S. Capitol, in which some U.S. citizens tried to block the certification of Joe Biden's election as president. Now, one thing that struck me about that was how low the Republican Party has sunk, something we all know, but we see continued demonstrations of. Contrast the two Republicans on the committee, the statements they made at the hearing, which I applaud them for. I applaud them for being there and willing to buck their party. Contrast that to the statements of the many other Republicans who were outside the Capitol building giving a news conference in which they engaged in the usual shenanigans um, blatantly false lies about what actually happened in this serious event, uh, demonstrating their fealty to one man over any principles the party claims to stand for, and trying to turn everything into partisan politics, even at a moment when the nation needs some kind of a guarantee or some kind of assurance that the parties are able to rise above that. So they look bad, right? But I don't want to present the Democrats as with purely good intentions in this either. I'm glad they're holding this hearing because there's a lot we need to know about what happened that day and what led up to it. But I'd like to ask the Democrats to probe the question just a little deeper. And that is to go back a few decades to see how we got to this point. Specifically, why so many U.S. citizens have become so angry and disillusioned with our government and with both political parties that a minority of them were willing to take extreme actions. Now, in my view, if you have a large part of the population witnessing declining life circumstances over the course of decades and politics as usual doesn't seem able or willing to help them with their circumstances, then yeah, there's going to be some extreme behavior. And our only chance of avoiding this extreme behavior becoming more widespread is for a serious inquiry into the responsibilities of both parties getting us to this point. All this anger, all this uh, distrust. Now, the Democrats in particular are hard to take seriously as upholders of democratic values when they in the past have acted undemocratically themselves. And I'm not just referring to things that Republicans point to as alleged incidents of their unfairness. I'm thinking, first of all, about how they deal with alternative political parties. Specifically, in the last few decades, the Green Party. 
Whenever the Democratic Party feels uh, threatened by the presence of the Green Party on a ballot, they try to kick them off the ballot, or they try to make it harder for them to stay on the ballot, or they make it harder for parties in some states to even get on the ballot in the first place, as well as during presidential elections, they keep alternative parties out of the national uh, presidential debates. Both Republicans and Democrats are complicit in that. They've taken control of the national presidential debates and they've agreed to keep independent candidates and, and alternative party candidates out of the debates, out of the media spotlight. So that doesn't look too democratic to me. And also look at the party's interference in their own primary system. This goes beyond the Bernie Sanders campaigns, but those are a prime example. In 2016, the National Democratic Committee was supposed to be a neutral force in the primary races. Yet we learn later they were colluding with the Hillary Clinton campaign to the disadvantage of the Bernie Sanders campaign. And in 2022, when Bernie Sanders was the leading candidate and Joe Biden was probably in last place among the top five candidates, the party establishment intervened in that election as well. The uh, party leadership, I think particularly former President Barack Obama, contacted both Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg, who were candidates in that race, and had them agree to drop out and endorse Joe Biden. Now, they didn't have to make specific promises to them, but it, I'm sure it was understood that if they play along with the party establishment, the party leadership, the leadership will help their careers down the line. So the willingness of the Democratic Party to act undemocratically toward the Green Party and toward reformist candidates in primaries erodes their credibility as neutral and nonpartisan arbiters of democratic rights and democratic values. Now, we've often criticized one-party states as dictatorial. And I agree with that, even though some one-party states allow the existence of other parties, they never give those other parties a serious chance of winning in elections. Same is true here as well, even though we have two major parties and not one, which obviously is a step in the right direction and a big advancement, they do the same thing. We allow alternative parties to exist, but the two major parties prevent them from building on the, the alternative parties, from building their voting base and ever having a serious chance of winning elections. So two parties may be a little better than one, but what's wrong with going beyond that to a multi-party system, a true multi-party system? Two can be as bad as one. It's the loneliest number since the number one. So what's wrong with our two-party system? Let me give you three big problems. First, it limits the ability of voters to express themselves clearly, thereby disempowering the voters. Now, maybe that one or the other of the major party candidates perfectly matches your views on every issue, but chances are they won't. Say, for example, you like one candidate better than the other because they support your positions on some of the issues, but still there's other issues that you disagree with that candidate about. If you vote for them, they're still going to take your vote as an endorsement of all their positions, not just some of them, so it distorts what you're trying to say through your vote. 
or say you don't like either of the candidates all that much, but you feel like one is maybe more competent and less dangerous than the other. Again, even if you're voting for the lesser evil, as it's called, the candidate that wins is going to take your vote, if you voted for them, as an, an endorsement of what it is they want to do. Or what if neither candidate is likely to act on the issues that you regard as most important? Say you want someone who will institute universal health care or reform campaign financing or stop United States military actions in all these other countries abroad, cut back on our military engagement. What if neither of the candidate is likely to act on any of those? So you vote for a candidate on some other grounds, but the real concerns that you have are not being expressed in that vote. Now, there may be an independent candidate or an alternative party candidate that better matches your views on things, and you could vote for them. But then your vote, your vote will be ignored entirely because that candidate is not going to win, has little chance of even getting much support. And so when it comes to the results, they're just going to talk about the winner and their other major party rivals. So voters are disempowered because their means of expressing themselves are limited only to two candidates with a serious chance of winning. Okay, second big problem. The two-party system empowers big financial donors and their lobbyists. Okay? If you have money to give to a candidate, lots of money to give to a candidate, and there's only two parties with a realistic chance, it's easy to say what you can do. You give your money to one or the other, or maybe both as is the case in many situations, you give them to both to hedge your bets, right? And if both parties are taking big donors, big money from donors, both parties are going to be inclined to what they give access to the lobbyists of those donors, and they're more likely to be influenced by those lobbyists than they are to be influenced by the ordinary voter who doesn't have as much access to that official. So, if there, if there were serious choices from outside those two major parties and people, voters were disgusted with those parties um, accepting so much big money, then the voters could escape to some other party and convey the message that we prefer a candidate who's not taking big donations or a party, a new party maybe, that's refused to take any big donations. But as long as those parties and candidates have no serious chance of winning, most voters are going to feel stuck with the two major party candidates and the donors have an easier time of trying to control the process. They just control both major parties and their job is done, so to speak. And finally, two-party system increases partisanship and negativity. First, there's the primary system. In order to become a serious candidate, you have to become the nominee of one of the two major parties. And to become the nominee of the party in most states, you have to win a primary in which only that party's voters can vote. So your voters in the primary are going to skew towards the most loyal party voters, the most partisan party voters, and the candidate that's the most partisan is has a good chance of emerging. Now, when it comes to the general election, as a candidate, you're going to know that you're only serious rival is the other major party candidate. And so getting people not to vote for that candidate is just as important as getting people to vote for you. So 
if you're going to have a positive message, you just give empty slogans and feel good messages so you can appeal to as many people as possible. But whenever you talk about the other candidate, you're going to say the most negative things possible. You're going to highlight their flaws, even distort their record in order to get people to be scared off from voting for them, especially the more independent voters, the voters who are unsure which way to go. If both candidates are doing this, politics overall becomes more partisan and more negative. Beyond campaigning, it extends into legislating and the regular process of government because each party is looking forward to the next election and trying to make the other party look as bad as possible, even to the point of denying a party that gets a majority from achieving anything. So they won't look good in the next election. So you see the Republicans continually blocking the Democratic agenda. So government looks like it can't achieve anything, no matter which party is in power and voters feel the lack of efficacy in the whole process, the lack of power. Okay, So those three things, disempowers the voters, empowers big donors, and creates more partisanship and negativity. Now, are there any advantages to a two-party system over a multi-party system? In political science, they used to talk about um, how parties in Europe, multi-party systems in Europe, were more vulnerable to extremists winning office and less stable. Now, if you think that the U.S. two-party system is able to exclude extremists from high office, you haven't been paying attention the last four years. Okay? And stability can be another word for protecting the status quo. If the status quo is serving the ordinary voter, the mass of voters well, that may be a positive thing. But in cases where times change, and politics needs to change, policy needs to change, the status quo becomes a bad thing, right? It becomes um, defense of privileged interest at the expense of needed change. Why do we have a two-party system? Well, this was not intentional on the part of the founders of this nation. In fact, they were opposed to people dividing up into factions in order to struggle against each other for power. But they laid the foundations when they created a number of single winner offices. Now, whenever you have an election with a single winner, there's going to be a tendency to create a two-party system. And in fact, once they ratified the Constitution, within a few years, political parties started forming. Okay, let's imagine an election in which there's four candidates, and each candidate with their supporters constitutes a party. Say that candidate A with the A party would get about 30% of the vote. Candidate B of the B party would get about 25% of the vote. Candidate C would get 25%, and candidate D would get 20%. Now, under the common plurality rule in which whoever gets the most votes wins, candidate A wins with 30% because he got the most votes. Now, if the D voters preferred candidate B to candidate A, they see the opportunity to join forces. So if B and D get together and join their 25% and 20%, they would get 45% and be able to beat A. 
So there's an incentive right there for a smaller party to join with a somewhat larger party in order to create a big party that has a better chance of winning. Same thing's going to happen next time. A sees that if they can attract C parties 25% of the vote, 30 plus 25 equals 55, and now they can beat the combined forces of B and D. So as long as there's a single winner, there's always an incentive for voters in the smaller groupings to migrate over to a larger group of voters and create a party that's bigger and can defeat other candidates. We started with four parties and we ended up with two big ones. It's the same situation today. Voters realize that they have to back one of the two largest parties in order for their vote to mean anything. There's still a few holdouts who vote for alternative party candidates, but they're minuscule because many more potential supporters of that alternative party are going to migrate over to a major party where they can try to advance their views within that party and join forces to beat the other party, which they like less. Same incentives to create a two-party system and leave the other parties in a marginal position. This is called the split vote problem. Whenever a potential coalition splits votes between two parties or two candidates, they might lose to a candidate they each like less when if they had combined forces, they would have a good chance of winning. So as long as anybody that has something in common with another set of voters is splitting off from that set of voters' party, there's a problem for them. They'll get nothing instead of getting something. Let's take a look at that election example again, but this time, instead of having a single winner, we can have a number of winners. Say there is a legislative body with 100 seats up for election, and each party gets a proportion of those seats based on its proportion of the vote. So if you had the same percentage we did last time, the A party would get about 30 seats, that's 30% of 100 seats. The B party would get 25 seats in the legislature. The C party would get 25 seats, and the D party would get 20 seats. There's no longer an incentive to combine forces because the smaller parties like D would have no reason to combine forces with A and help A get more seats if the D party on its own gets 20 seats and can build from there. So if you have a proportional representation system, there's more of a tendency to have a multi-party system. So now we come to the interesting question of what can we do about the two-party system? And obviously the first thing that comes to mind is we could move from single winner elections to multi-winner elections using some type of proportional representation to assign seats. Now for legislative bodies, in general, that's feasible. For example, each state, as far as I'm aware, uh, has both a House of Representatives and a Senate. I think there's one state that has just a single House in its legislature, but all of them, to the best of my knowledge, assign seats in their legislature by dividing the state up into districts, geographic districts, each of which elects a single member to their state legislative body. For example, in Oregon, the uh, state senate elects its state senators, each from an individual geographic district, and the same in our House of Representatives. 
We divide the state into House districts, and each district elects a single member to the State House of Representatives. So what we could do is we could move into a system with larger districts that elect several winners. For example, the whole state could vote and then assign seats in the House proportionally according to the party share of the vote. Or you could have uh, somewhat larger districts than we have now. Instead of electing a single winner, they could elect maybe three, four, five, six members to one of the bodies in a state legislature and use proportional representation that way. So the idea is you'd have to have larger districts and that would require perhaps a change in the state constitution, but for sure a change in state electoral laws. Now the U.S. House of Representatives is similar, but there is a um, little kink here. Right now, 435 members of the U.S. House are elected, each of them, from a single geographic district. For example, in Oregon, we have five um, representatives that we elect to the House, and we divide our state up into five districts, each of which elects one person to, to go to the U.S. House. So we get five altogether from those five districts. But then there's states that are so small in population, they only have a single representative assigned to them. So that's necessarily going to be a single winner district. So many of the states could do multi-winner elections to, to assign seats, their share of seats to the U.S. House of Representatives, but some states, a few states, could not do that. Now, when you come to the U.S. Senate, the, um, the problem is even more difficult because each state gets two senators, and each of those two senators are elected in a different year. So in effect, each senator is elected from a single member district, their state, and you can't change to a multi-member district without changing the dates that senators are elected in, in each state. And also, it would only be two senators to each state. Otherwise, you'd have to assign them nationally in some form, which would require a big constitutional amendment. Now, you also have another problem, which is even if you made a lot of changes to the way we elect people to legislatures at the national level or the state level, there's still a lot of offices that are necessarily single winner. And here I'm referring to elected executive offices. For electing the president, you, there's only gonna be one winner. So you can't have a multi-winner election for a single president. It's the same thing in the states when it comes to electing governors or other state executive offices, like some states, it's a secretary of state, attorney general, lieutenant governor, all these different positions only can be one person who wins. So not easy to move from single winner districts to multi-member districts, and in some cases you can't do it at all. And as long as you have these offices which are single winner, there's going to be a tendency for the nation to continue to be um, more of a two-party system. Even if uh, different parties get more traction in legislative elections, there's still only going to be one winner for the top offices which would mean there's an incentive for parties to get together in coalitions once more. So hard to change the U.S. system to um, multi-winner elections. But there's another option, which is changing the rule that says that a voter can vote for only one candidate in an election. Instead, you can allow them to vote for as many candidates as they like. 
And in our previous example, instead of voters from the D party feeling like they have to move over to the B party, they can simply say they like both D and B candidates. That way there's no split vote problem, or at least it's mitigated to some extent. I'm not going to get into the details of that right now, but there's also systems that say you can even show preferences between more than one candidate. For example, you can say, I like both the candidate of the B party and the candidate of the D party, but I like the D candidate a little more than I like the B candidate, and those preferential orderings are used to determine the outcome. Now, this isn't just pie-in-the-sky stuff, because there's already a movement to institute alternative voting systems in the United States. That first type of voting that I mentioned, in which you can vote for more than one candidate at a time, is called approval voting, and that's recently been adopted by two cities. The form you're most likely to have heard of is ranked choice voting, where you can rank order the candidates in your order of preference. My first choice, my second choice, my third choice, and so forth. Ranked choice voting is used in a number of cities and counties across, this, across the country, and it's been adopted for state and federal elections in two states, Maine and Alaska. In Alaska's case, they're planning to use it for the presidential election in 2024 to determine their electoral votes. And finally, there's a newly developed form of voting, which is getting a lot of attention quickly, and that is STAR voting, which stands for score than automatic runoff. In STAR voting, instead of ranking candidates, you give them scores of from 0 to 5 to indicate how much you prefer each candidate. STAR voting hasn't been adopted anywhere yet, but there's been a couple of trial experiments with it and a couple of initiative drives to get it to uh, be used in state and county elections here in Oregon. So I want to go into each of those in more detail in a future program, including the pros and cons of each. But I want to sum up today by saying that as long as we have single winner elections, there's going to be two major parties for the simple reason that uh, it's going to take widespread support for somebody to win a single seat in an election. Now, the advantage of alternative voting systems is they give alternative parties the option, the, the opportunity to actually make a case that a vote for them will matter that it will raise their issues, that it won't detract from you being able to vote for a major party candidate if you're afraid of the lesser evil problem that a worse candidate will emerge. So each of these forms of voting have the opportunity potential for the alternative parties to raise issues and make their case and attract voters in a way they wouldn't have without a new form of voting. And if they're drawing voters away from the major parties, the major parties are going to have to adopt uh, adapt and listen to those issues and start making a response to the voters. If they don't adapt, there is a strong possibility that at some point, one of those major parties is going to be replaced by a different party. So that's it for today. I would like to hear your reactions and comments. If you could leave them, please, on either the Allen on Politics YouTube channel or the Allen on Politics Facebook page. I thank you again for listening, and I welcome, welcome you back next week. Thanks. You know together.